Before we get started today, I want to give a special thanks to Hashtag Paid, our top sponsor this week. Uh, I want to say goodbye to influencers. I want to say hello to creators. You can get your consumers talking about your brand, buying your product with creator marketing. Uh, find out why creator marketing works up to four times better uh, for your customer acquisition dollars by signing up with Hashtag Paid. Go to hashtagpaid.com. Thanks very much. There's never been a better time to be a direct-to-consumer business. Join us as we uncover the strategies and scaling secrets of the world's most disruptive brands and agencies. This is DTC Podcast. Hello and welcome to the D2C Podcast. I'm Eric Dick along with co-host Kyle Guilfoyle. And today we are extremely lucky to be talking to a good friend of mine, Jesse Campbell, who is a designer and the founder of Partner, a design agency that specializes in brand, e-commerce, and digital product experiences. Jesse has nearly 15 years of experience in the industry. He has led projects for global brands and some of the top 100 Shopify stores. Uh, today we are going to be talking about product uh, e-commerce product experience specifically, as well as some interesting things uh, about the cannabis industry and how to build trust in your products. Welcome to the D2C podcast. Jesse, how you doing? Eric, Kyle, hi. Thank you so much for having me. Like, I'm interested to like this blockchain thing that you were mentioning a little mm. bit. Like, what happens when we have, when, like, what does that mean for the resale market? You know, when when everything is blockchained, like, do you have the right to resell things? Cause I know there's some companies that are like trying to take that right away from you. Right. Right. Yeah. There's uh, that's, I've actually not, not thought much about that, but I think the, in my, like my, my knowledge of the, how products on the blockchain actually works is like about that big, but to my understanding, yeah. it's more of a traceability thing and not necessarily a, an ownership thing, thing. An ownership thing um, yeah. or a rights thing. Yeah. It's more of a, um, you know, in the, and, and the way that, that I've sort of perceived it coming to light is uh, perhaps a product like a cannabis product that is uh, coming from a single source that needs to be um, tracked either for reporting purposes for like uh, legislation or for, for um, compliance. Um, and also for the good of the consumer who maybe wants to know that it was this specific lot that this came from, which means it has these specific qualities, whether it's terpenes or THC or CBD. And so being able to attach that to a singular like place that you can go and visit virtually and see all of the information about that and the, the path it took to get to my doorstep or uh, into my hands is uh, I think a pretty beneficial one I know that there's a lot more sort of more to it in terms of if you think about how that how that looks for I don't know, a pair of pants and where the, the materials are coming from, where, the, where it's assembled, um, what the sort of what the origins of, of all of it are. I think mm -hmm. that's um, I haven't extrapolated it in my mind as much as it possibly can, but I know that it's an entire market. There are companies out there. Um, that uh, there's one that's called Provenance that uh, is exists just to do that. And again, well, so much of it is about the brand. And if your brand identity is one of radical transparency, like right now, the blockchain is probably something that we're adding on as like a 
you know, a, something that is like a value signal that people like, you know, but that's not to say that it won't become something a lot more profound. And right now, th- those are the just those are the edges you need in your brand to make people mm-hmm. want to associate with you, right? So even if it just even if no one's really, you know, I can't imagine someone is going to like, if they're getting stuff all the time, they're going to be like checking again to be like, you know, is it from this particular place or, or whatever. But at the same time, right now, it's a pretty valuable selling feature to, to be able to start. Yeah. 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 Totally. Um, I think the, it's kind of, there's this play of like, what does the consumer want and what do we have in terms of information? Mm. You know, some, some consumers, especially in the cannabis industry are just like, I will buy it. I'm looking for something that's either inexpensive or is strong or is weak or is whatever it might be. Um, and other, other users are um, very, you know, whether it's because they have uh, a medical condition that they're treating or something like that, they're very uh, specific around what their, what their requirements are, what they're looking to purchase. So being able to provide that is not necessarily like, oh, you want to buy some cannabis? Like here's a, an encyclopedia about this product, which is a little bit heavy handed or can be, but with the right user experience, it sort of allows the user to sort of flip over the, the carton and see what the ingredients are essentially. Should we just spin this into a cannabis pot? Like we have so many cannabis people on our list. We have so many CBD people. We have people <laughs> coming out of the woodworks all the time to want to work with pilot us. And it's not an area that oh, we right. transparently have a lot of experience in on, you know, marketing right. it, especially because it's so tricky. Um, sure. But it would be really interesting because I know that you're pretty intimately involved with some some cannabis brands, right? Just just one in particular, um, yeah. who is like they they are a uh, national medical uh, cannabis provider that uh, is sort of transitioning into a re- into the recreational space as uh, Canadian legislation allows. Um, they're sort of sitting right at the at the front line of like where the where the uh, legality is. So as things open up, they're going to move into that. Um, and what's your playbook but, for uh, that? That's what I'm, that's what I'm so interested in just because mm-hmm. in the year that cannabis has been around in Canada, like when mm-hmm. it first came out, it was just so personality lists. It was so like, they, there's so many uh, restrictions put on, on marketers and, and, and brand builders. I feel like mm-hmm. in the Canadian market to, to make brands that stand out. So I'm interested, like, you know, with a, with a medicinal brand where you have people, if correct me if I'm wrong, they're actually making, they're talking, they're actually like, that's a governmental sort of decision where they're like, I'm going to buy from this grower right? Like that, it, yeah. it's, people are kind of like locked into their relationships on the medicinal side a bit more, right? A little bit. And it's, it's mostly because um, I think the hardest part for the, for the medical user is to, um, at least digitally speaking, to uh, retrieve or, or to achieve a membership with a company that is a provider. Um, they need to submit a bunch of paperwork and a bunch of documentation and agreements and uh, they need to get a, you know, that prescription essentially from some healthcare provider. And so that's like a barrier to entry that, I mean, if you can imagine trying to purchase anything online and having to uh, get a note from some third party uh, in an office that you would need to physically go to, that's, that's, a, that's a pretty tall order to, to ask of any user to do all of this stuff just to be able to buy. Um, but once, you know, so if, if if companies can lower that barrier and um, then, you know, create greater access to that membership, then they have sticky customers. Those customers are like, I mean, pardon the pun, um, they are sticky customers and sticky icky. 
Yeah, exactly. And so once, once that customer is in there, it's unlikely that, I mean, so long as you're continuing to sort of evolve the offering and, you know, maintain good customer support, your customers are going to be there and they're going to be there forever because they have, uh, you know, lifelong ailments that they're, they're possibly treating with cannabis. And um, that's just a place that they're going to go on a weekly or on a monthly basis. It's just going to be a regular thing. Very cool. And then yeah. what, what steps are you taking to, to actually like, how do you make a brand? How do you launch a brand into the Canadian market to the consumer side of things? Mm. I mean, we're, we're fortunate to be working with a company that has an established uh, relationship with a lot of medical users. Um, they are in a position where they have, they have those medical users already. So as, yep. um, as cannabis was legalized, um, there was, you know, there was momentum there, um, which just means that that they don't have to do a, a big brand reveal and a big uh, sort of splash into the industry to to make a dent. They're already there. Um, but what that means in terms of servicing the uh, servicing the industry is essentially being on top of like what the customer wants and. Uh, continuing to make it easier and easier to gain access for those who need it. Um, and there's like a handful of other things that are really important to uh, to this company and their medical users. But essentially, it just is a matter of like looking at what people are looking for and making it easier for them to like find that product. Because the odds are what I'm going to look for as a medical user um, might be something that's high CBD, low THC, because they don't like the experience. And something that my parents look for as a med medical users is going to be completely different. They might be looking for more of an experience out of it or looking to treat different things. And this is all under the umbrella of medical use. Um, there's also um, arguments on either side of the spectrum for, for uh for recreational use as well, but that's a little bit more of a uh, regulatory compliance thing that that Canada is like slowly opening up, at least in terms of e-commerce. I wonder how it's doing overall in Canada because I remember it, it started off so slowly and so, but I but like you know there's 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 a, I, I go in and there's a fair amount of people there every time. Like I imagine mm. it's becoming you know it's it's a lot it's a lot less dire than it was last year at this time. Yes. <laughs> a, a lot less, wait, a lot less dire in what way? Well, I just looks like the, the projections, like, I just feel like our launch mm. was, was, was really, it was not that great. Like, like we, in terms of the numbers that a lot of these big Canadian growers were anticipating, mm -hmm. um, I, I, there I, was I a fall from of, grace for sure. I think a lot yeah. of that fall from grace was, was because of, uh, maybe lack of, lack of preparation from the producers. Um, I, I do know some of the like initial like roundabout numbers in terms of like some of the work that uh, I've done with like the provincial on, on the provincial side mm. um, with the BC cannabis stores uh, when that launched and when it, when that switch flicked, people were like drowning that website with with visits for a long time and I can only imagine that it's uh, yeah it's a continued success so. Uh, there might not be a ton of people in the actual cannabis stores now, but um, I think the the supply has maybe started to catch up with the demand a little bit. Mm. And 
I think there was, there's also this uh, inter interesting thing that I hadn't really put a lot of thought to until I kind of got into uh, somehow like found myself servicing the industry a lot uh, is the transition of gray market to white market and what that actually looks like for producers, for uh, providers, for, for anyone who has access. Um, the, the regulatory and compliance side of things wasn't just a, uh, like, it wasn't a, a, a flick of the switch saying, okay, now, like, now you can sell. There's a lot more uh, process that has gone into, um, as you can imagine, the, the bureaucracy and, and taxation and et cetera, et cetera, all of the like back end business stuff that has gone into the cannabis industry that I don't even fully understand or, or, or care to. Mm. Um, but it wasn't just a flick of the switch. So the, the supply was there kind of probably secretly. Um, and, but the, the supply on a, from a, like a regulatory standpoint from um, approved licensed providers just couldn't fit the demand. And so that's probably where that fall came from. And we had such a great gray market, you know, like that, the gray market oh, yeah. in Victoria in terms of like globally, it was maybe, you know, that's like, I think regulated industries are maybe, you know, easier because everyone kind of wants them. But I was blown away with how good the, the gray market experience was in Victoria. There were so many different places. So it's like, so I think that stutter st step, especially in a, in, in a place like Victoria had a lot to do with, with there being these other options that they didn't really crack down on right away. Mm -hmm. Yeah, there's, yeah, there was, there was this like gray zone, you know, gray market where it's like, it's, it's legalized and we're not gonna, you know, there, I mean, you were, you were in the city as we were experiencing that every second storefront was a cannabis store. You couldn't walk a half a block without tripping over two sandwich boards to, you know, please come into my cannabis store. So, and, you know, I think that's, the bubble that was created um, that had to burst in order for it to actually become uh, like a more sustainable standardized industry. Nice. As one with so much white tape. What, what would you say uh, your, your specific, you know, like area of expertise is like your, your zone of genius or whatever you want to call it. <laughs> Man, that's a hard, that's a hard one. Um, I would say, I mean, I'm, I'm speaking with a lot of uh, confidence around the, the cannabis industry because I've been working alongside it or with it for the last couple of years based on some of the projects that I've done. Um, but I think the thinking that goes into to solving the problems for that is really just the design thinking side of it. Um, so uh, my company partner is a design agency and we specialize in brand and e-commerce and, and digital products. And so having done some work with some of like larger Shopify, uh, some of the like top 100 Shopify companies um, and some like large national brands or international brands, there tends to be a lot of like, uh, there's the surface side, there's the front end side that is like, how are we going to show the customer what they're buying or what they're, what they need to do here. Um, and then there's a lot of the sort of behind the scenes thinking that sort of ties up the front end and the back end. And by the back end, I mean, um, the back end of the business, um, whether that's fulfillment, whether that's like really specialized shipping options, whether that's 
you know, dealing with all of the regulatory compliance of, of cannabis and kind of merging those together. And so it's kind of this uh, connective tissue that might be, that might be my, my best guess at where my genius lies, if, if I have any at all. Which, which, yeah. What part of your job is your favorite part? If you had to like, if you could do all day on it, would it be like on logo design? Would it be on like, what, what, what part of the design process is your favorite? I'm, I'm not the greatest design producer. Um, I'm, I tend to be pretty slow at it actually. And, uh, the parts that I really enjoy and I think the parts that I think I'm quite good at are identifying, uh, where the gaps are between say design and development. I've, I've lived in those gaps and I'm pretty familiar with, um, understanding what design and development needs or from another perspective, what our design agency needs to provide for this business who has a weird, um, hole in their service, whether it's, I mean, we did a project earlier this year for a company who needed to ship their products. It was a, a national gelato brand. They wanted to do e-commerce in the summer selling gelato to their across Canada, which meant they need to get that gelato from A to B in a really short period of time. Their logistics team took part, took care of a lot of that, but there was also this weird like shipping bubble that we needed to stick within. And so solving those sort of front end to back end problems um, and in, from, from a user standpoint, I think is where I, uh, where I, where I love to put my thinking, um, getting that, that experience of like putting the thinking cap on and coming up with some solutions for a company to somehow differentiate themselves is, uh, is where I, where I love to sit. And There's so much value there. Yeah, totally. And, uh, well, I'm curious, uh, I mean, di differentiation is such a, you know, it's, it's obviously so important. What are, what are some of the first questions you ask to, to get clear on how to differentiate a brand? I'm not sure if that's too broad of a question, but, mm. um, could you riff on that a little bit? Can you, can you rephrase that? Can you? Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah. Um, so a brand knocks on your door and, mm. and they're, let's say they're a cannabis brand and, mm. uh, you know, they're probably struggling to stand out in a sea of same or, you know, um, similar mm. products. How, how would you go about, um, you know, diving into the best way, uh, said cannabis brand can differentiate themselves. And I'm, I'm not sure right. if, if it's possible, sure. but be fun yeah. to try. So whether it's a cannabis brand or any, any sort of, uh, any brand out there. Um, I was, I was putting some thought to this in terms of, I mean, we had, we had started our notes here for this, uh, podcast that we're now just riffing and improvising, which I love. Um, we started some notes early about trust and transparency. And I think if, if any e-commerce company is going to build a loyal, follower base or a loyal customer base. Um, it's going to be because there is trust it, because those, those people trust the company just well enough to come back again and hopefully, hopefully, hopefully uh, bring their friends or share it somehow. Or when someone asks where the t-shirt came from, they say, and they say, you should also check it out. So there's a, there's a huge uh, part of trust there. And I really think that brands have two stories to tell one of them is a functional story that says, hey, we made this product. It does what it intends to do really well, and it'll show up at your doorstep if you order one. 
And so there's like that really functional thing that says it's a real product made by people and you can have one too. Um, then there's the emotional story that says, we made this product for you because we understand what you want in a product like this and why you make purchases like this. And so it allows users to sort of opt in to a more, um, to a, like a, a deeper sort of instinctual level of, of, of buying. And I think that's where you get, uh, and, and the crossover of that, I think is really important to identify for companies too. So for, um, for a, a very sort of like logical type product, I don't know, I'm, I'm thinking products that are more commoditized, um, you're going to need to tell that story that this is, the, this is the best version of it. But for products that are more emotional purchases, you really need to sort of push the perceived value of what you're buying up. And that comes with brand building. Uh, some of the, the questions that I have asked in brand building experiments or brand building workshops uh, and I really hope I get to ask more of these uh, to, you know, more companies and bigger companies, but uh, are a couple of like shortcut questions. Some of the things I like to think about for, you know, my own brand or others is things like, what would a pop-up look like for your company? What would a pop-up in the middle of a, like a post-pandemic Times Square uh, look like for your company? And that forces people out of the, forces the like the people I'm chatting with out of the bubble of like, my company lives online and it's it has a nice looking online store and it forces them into thinking about like, well, what is the experience I would create there? Um, or another example here is like, what are some kind of out there or weird products that, that would also kind of fit into your product line if you had the opportunity to make them? A good example of this is Dyson's uh, hair, hair care products. They, to me, first glance, they're a vacuum company. But when they came out with their four or $500 um, blow dryer, it was all of a sudden this like, oh, that is, that's brand moves right there. It's Tesla's blowtorch. It has nothing to do with the car. It's just, it, and you know, these are companies that are actually doing these, but just simply asking those questions and saying, what are these things um, can be, can elicit really interesting uh, responses that, that, um, show what the personality of the company is. It shows what the uh, overall sort of values and, and positioning of the company is. So there's, uh, I don't know, I, I think those kinds of questions can really elicit fun answers and I, fun explorations. I love that idea of the pop-up in Times Square because it's like you, yeah, your, your website is this thing that was built a couple of years ago and maybe you've got mm. sales pages on top of it or whatever, but yeah. like that, yeah, just to think of your brand as that, it's like, you might have something really evolved to say that that might mm -hmm. not be what your website says anymore. And then that idea of just yeah. focusing it on that experience, that pop-up uh, and then letting that maybe flow back into your, your whole brand identity seems like super valuable. Totally. It also allows people to think, again, outside the box of like the browser window or the phone or whatever it might be into a like more personal people are walking by. What am I showing them? What am I giving them? What am I, what kind Engaging of experience with, am, yeah. I, am I creating for them? And then you can say, okay, that's the experience because this, and therefore, what does that look like online? What does it look like on the phone? What does it look like um, on, uh, on a, any piece of technology? And um, I mean, those are, those are really beneficial. I, I think there's there's a lot of value to those in a from a brand building perspective. Yeah. Yeah.
totally. Um, I love the Dyson example too, because it's like we we talk about on this podcast all the time about the idea of jobs to be done and how product mm. lines can sort of expand by this idea of, you know, what else does that person want to have done? The Dyson one is different because it's like their science is based on moving air. You know what yeah, I mean? So it's not totally. necessarily about like someone who vacuums also will love blowing blow drying their hair. It's it's more just like the jobs that their technology can do. It, it's yeah. it's it, it's an interesting one. Yeah, it it tackles that's sort of the functional story. You know, that's more of a like, what what can we do here? Uh, they already have the perceived value pushed up. So they know that anything that they launch, you know, and, and the same goes with, you know, Tesla's blowtorch or their ATV, the perceived value is there. I know that if I were to buy any one of those things, that there's going to be a weight to it, that there's going to be like, uh, there's going to be a certain feel to it. Same with Dyson's hair blow dryer or whatever it might be. So, all of a sudden you have this perceived value that's been pushed up and you have um, the opportunity to just put things under that umbrella uh, so long as it actually informs more around like what your product does or what your company is, is capable of doing, what your brand is capable of doing. Very and cool. when it comes to, this is another thing, like, I mean, I love, I love these brand conversations because of what I mentioned earlier about like how it is, you know, it's, it is kind of like, there's something, at the real about it, it's, it's hard to like, you know, put it into practice. And so, you know, uh, when you say, um, you know, trust and transparency are, you know, really important to, to, to help differentiate a brand. I'm, I'm, you know, I'm curious what some examples of things, uh, e-commerce companies are doing or have done that have, uh, you know, have engendered trust in, in, you know, uh, their, their audience so that they'll buy more of their stuff. Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah, it does. Um, I think the, I mean, the first place that a lot of people go in the in the transparency and trust side of things is like a really easy, it's really easy to leap to this conclusion of, oh, that means I need to be transparent around uh, where my products are coming from. And we've seen companies do this really successfully. Um, you know, if we think about any any, any company like, Tom's or Madewell or um, Outdoor Voices or you know whoever those uh, those companies are who are very transparent about what their what their factories look like where their products are coming from et cetera et cetera that's a really simple uh, sort of leap to say transparency equals this um, you know supply chain is transparency but it's like and this is more of like a societal uh, problem. And this could be like a bit of a rabbit hole here, so I won't go down it, but I'm just saying that if Amazon has shown us anything, it's that, that supply chain, uh, is really a nice to have at best that like people will choose to, if they can save $2, they will save $2 if it's the same product here or there. Um, so supply chain is a, a way to, to be transparent, but there's also trust building in transparency around, and this going back to the cannabis example, um, you know, transparency in what the products are, are made of, you know, so we have, um, and again, this is speaking from experience only with cannabis and it can be applied to anything like any consumable like wine or beer or any unique product uh, or nuanced product, but, you know, being able to show the user that, well, this is a plant, um, it, it has these qualities because it is from this specific lot grown at this specific place. You can call it whatever you want. You can call it OG Kush. You can call it, um, 
you know, any product name that, that, or any strain, but if you grow it down the road versus here, it's going to have different qualities. And so being transparent about what those qualities actually are. And this obviously requires like lab testing and stuff like that for products like cannabis, but being transparent about what actually goes into that uh, product so that the customer knows really not just that they're getting this bag of weed, but they're getting something that has been sort of put through the right process. And uh, I'm able to learn as much about it as I possibly want to. So that's like being transparent about like what goes into a product. That's not necessarily just supply chain stuff, but like the, the, in cannabis's example, chemical makeup. The other, the other way to create transparency or to sort of uh, imbue this sense of like transparency or, or, or trust or whatever is just being really generous with how products are shown. I, I love when I can, you know, be on a shop and, and see not only what this shirt looks like on a human, but also how tall is that human? Because I'm, I'm six, six. And if that short is, if that shirt is hitting like, uh, you know, the belt line of a six, one person, I know that it's going to be at my belly button and that's not going to really work for me. Um, so, uh, transparency around that transparency means, um, you know, showing the shirt at, you know, 500% zoom. So I can almost feel what that, that material looks like. It might even mean having a video that shows someone walking around so I can see how it moves or I can see how it sort of drapes on a person as they're moving. And so there's, I mean, all of this is, is sort of, I'm putting it under this umbrella of transparency. Um, but it mostly just means creating an experience that um, feels like I'm there that it feels like I'm brought in and that there is less of a barrier between me and whatever I'm experiencing or whatever I'm trying to purchase or, or, or um, um, accomplish on this site. Yeah. It's, it's awesome. We, and it, it, well, was, it reminds me of, um, of that concept of, you know, we're looking for uh, a blue ocean or a green field uh, where, you know, we can differentiate ourselves. And um, you know, the, the idea that um, when content and product you know, meet one another um, in in a powerful way. That's where your your blue ocean uh, mm -hmm. can can lie. And um, and your your first example there about you know weed and showing the the um, you know the chemical makeup and the process uh, that mm -hmm. goes into it really it reminds me of um, of that classic example of Schlitz beer. Um, you know, the 1900 ad where they um, they they showed that their beer was made in like a you know I don't know their their warehouse or whatever, like had filtered air or something. And every single brewery was doing the exact same thing, but they were the first ones to, you know, really own it and put it into their content and their advertising. And, you know, as a result, they, um, you know, they catapulted their sales. So, um, yeah. And, and, and I think totally. it's just such a, it's such a juicy spot to, to find content ideas is just look at what goes into, you know, making your product and then, and then share that. And, uh, yeah. Yes. So, Love Vanessa that. will love this. That is content strategy right there. That is looking at all of the stuff that you have and saying, how do we show or what parts of it do we need to show the user? Um, and then figuring out a good way to actually show that to the user because it's important. And that can come from a design side, but, but honestly, that comes from this like higher level strategy side. What do we need to say and how do we mm -hmm. need to say it? Um, you know, 
you know, going back to this cannabis example, what do we need to say? What do the users care about? Well, they're medical users. They want to know that they're going to buy something that has this chemical makeup and that specific chemical makeup is really only achieved once, one single time in one single lot. And so to give the users the ability to search for similar chemical makeups uh, further down the line um, is a content choice. It's saying, these are the aspects of cannabis that are important to our user. How do we surface that? What is the strategy around, you know, giving our users the access to, um, or the ability to sort of sort by or filter by or um, otherwise discover products that are 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 um, sort of fit under this under this. Uh, and choice. Like this is all, this is, this is just a, you know, giving transparency mm -hmm. and choice, giving people that ability to experience the product and experience the shopping of the product in all these different ways. We posted a, one of our first issues, uh, a stat that, that uh, Shopify put out about stores that were using AR VR product experiences. Just, yeah. I think it was like 94% in, in increase in conversion rates, something crazy. Right. Yeah. And I feel like it's, there's, we're still in the very early days with all that stuff. Like very, I feel like very few stores are using that well. Yeah, uptake is is small. And I think that's because uh, like, A, it's kind of still like novel and experimental. It's also uh, likely pretty pricey to, you know, I mean, if you if you have your your product, uh, you would need to get that modeled and textured properly. Uh, the the technology is a little bit unknown. It's kind of like you're introducing another uh, arm of, of design and technology into your designer development process so your business your business knowledge needs to go up as well so your overhead goes up oh you're launching three products a month well that's uh that's a lot of cost to get that model then put into an ar environment appropriately um mm. so that i think is the, you know the bar there is going to lower and lower over time as more you know as more companies realize that you said 94 percent uptick that might be worth it to, you know, it might not be worth it for some, but it might be really worth it to those with like high ticket items. Or, you know, I know that there's like, uh, I think it's like upcycle something cycle. Uh, they do a really great job of their AR, A, AR in, uh, in their app uh, or in their website. And so like furniture, bikes, bigger things that you need to actually step back and look at from across the room or walk around to actually fully experience. That's, uh, uh, yeah, that's, that's great. We've even seen, actually, there's this technology of uh, you put this really like skin tight uh, suit on. It has a bunch of dots. And then you take photos of yourself with uh, with your phone. And then it, it builds a 3D map of your body. And then that 3D map can actually be used to size you up for, I think it was sizing you up for a suit or for, for clothing. But if you can imagine like that as a service, then, you know, clothing store X over here can actually use that service to say, Hey, here's what this looks like on you. Um, That's so there's like, it's like, like, yeah, like a plug all like of these API. technologies that are like, you know, we could create a, a mental map with yarn and, and pins uh, all over the place here, but AR VR. Yeah. That's, that's going to be a lot of fun when we get there. I think the uptake is, is slow, but as you said, super valuable. I wanted you to talk a little bit more about, you, you know, you brought up this brand that you talk about, you know, the, the plight of being a, a six foot six gentleman um, <laughs> and, and how that, how that relates to clothes shopping, but what that sort of yeah. taught you about that experience and how valuable, like mm. how, how valuable that can be. 
I, yeah, as you said, I'm six foot six. And I'm, there was a moment, a number, a few years ago, probably three or four years ago at this point, uh, where I discovered a, a brand called Son of a Tailor. And there was just something in the back of my mind so like that is that has like been prevalent for years and years, which is who can I ask to just make me a t-shirt that is, you know, it might be this favorite t-shirt of mine at home, but two inches longer here and an inch narrower here or whatever it might be. Um, as it's not just that I'm, I'm tall, I'm, I'm fairly, I'm, I'm a bit of a rail. So um, anything that's large or extra large can tend to be a little boxy. So this is like me as a, as a, an individual human and there are, you know, 7 billion of us. Um, but what Son of a Tailor has done is allowed me, again, this is, this goes back to our conversation about uh, brand loyalty or customer loyalty. It allowed me to go onto their site and build my specific shirt. I can choose every dimension of this shirt um, and then order a number of them. And uh, this gets into tiered pricing. You order more, you get less or you get them for less, but um, I built my perfect t-shirt. They sent me one and then I had one round of like, okay, I can edit the size because uh, it's e-commerce and we need to like work on this a little bit. And uh, so I edited the size and then I got this shirt like dialed in and I got them and they're a little more pricey than uh, a standard t-shirt, not by, not by a ton, but something that fits me for me, something that's actually personalized. And I think you can actually even put a little monogram by the hip or something like that to, to really dial it in. But something that just fits me, have all sorts of pocket options or neck options or sleeve length types and stuff like that. And I just remember experiencing that and being like, oh, that is that is the next stage for e-commerce. That is one of the next stages for e-commerce, being incredibly personalized and allowing users to not have to fit into this general mold of like, you know, this is, this is what a t-shirt generally looks like. Um, yeah. I remember that being this, like a bit of an aha moment uh, for, for personalization, I guess. And you may never buy another, like you, you, you'll never buy another t-shirt or it'll be you, you, like, it'll be almost impossible for you to leave this brand now. Yeah. Well, I think the, going back to what we were talking about uh when we were when we were speaking about like customer stickiness, it took me time to build that. It took me this like, uh, you know, they send the t-shirts. I think they're in Denmark or something like that. They send the t-shirt over. You try it on. You're like, okay, next a little wide or this is a little short or whatever. And then you adjust your measurements and lock it in and then order the rest of them. Um, so now that I've gone through that process, I know what I would change about the next order. Um, but I've gone through that process. I've actually spent the time there, so I'm invested. My time is invested. Um, and that investment, if it was a difficult process, if it was a shitty looking website and the experience was really awful and I didn't really know what I was getting in the end, it would be, uh, I probably wouldn't have spent that time, but it was actually a fun process. They made it really fun and I, I will go back there because of it. And anytime I, I do buy a t-shirt, which is pretty frequently, Vanessa will definitely attest to that. Um, I, I do think about them. Like I could actually just buy this over there and it'll be exactly my fit, but and did, that's did, my own, did, my own Everest. Did you, <laughs> did, did you make this site? No, no, we did not. Okay. No, that's something so I discovered and have just had big hearts in my eyes. Awesome. Well, uh, I mean, I, I, 
I think this this site is like a masterclass in um, kind of what we've been talking about here. Um, you know, showing the specifics uh, about your product and also mm-hmm. you know what goes into the production. Right on it, they have you know these little animated videos showing um, you know the product being made, and it's it's really beautiful, uh, wonderful. Uh, user experience mm-hmm. so, yeah it makes um, it makes the user feel like they're buying something really premium it's mm-hmm. a t-shirt but it's, t-shirt. it's not just premium and it's not just premium it's for them it's totally tailored for them it's yeah in their names. yeah really so worth worth checking out son of a tailor.com yeah. uh so before we wrap up um it if i'm hearing correctly your expertise really is is at the crux of of brand strategy and design and bringing these together to um you know, to, to obviously to, to bring, uh, business results to, uh, to bear. Uh, and they're kind of, these are kind of things that are tricky to put your hand on. Design is, is tricky. Brand mm-hmm. is tricky. I'm really curious about what some of your favorite resources are, uh, you know, where you've, mm-hmm. uh, learned them, you know, where you've learned the most to actually, uh, action these things and, 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 uh, and make them a reality. Do you have any? Hmm. I'll try and keep it relevant to, to what we've been talking about already. Um, because partner, my company is, is, you know, it straddles e-commerce and digital products. So, and what I've found in designing both or being part of the design process for both is that they are sort of like converging right now. And something we didn't actually get, get a chance to talk about is like the, the, infinite choice of, of e-commerce platforms that are out there right now. Um, I, I think that there is so much overlap that is going to continue to happen between digital product and e-commerce as we are designing for e-commerce, we'll, we'll tend to be maybe building a Shopify theme or editing a Shopify theme or working on how a customer is showing their products or featuring their products or getting their products you know, uh, more discoverable or whatever it might be. Um, but a lot of the problems that we're solving there are coming from, are, are, are being resolved by product thinking, product like digital product thinking. So creating user workflows for, you know, if there's a coffee subscription service, well, what are the steps that go into that? And this is all like product type thinking. Um, you know, going back to the son of a tailor example, that workflow of going from zero to custom fit is the same sort of workflow as as it's thought about in the same way as you would um, design any sort of onboarding for any digital product like an iPhone product or a game or something like that. There's, you know, jobs to be done by the user that allow them to get to a point where they are a sticky customer and they trust you and and they they love you for taking them through this experience in such a meaningful way or in such a personalized way, I think that's where, um, that's where like these two worlds are going to continue to collide or, or overlap. It's not actually a collision. It's more of a, like, uh, an overlapping and convergent convergence. Um, in terms of some of the, like, you know, best experiences out there or where I look for, for inspiration, that's kind of on a, on a day-to-day basis. There's so much great work and there are so many incredible agencies out there doing some really awesome thinking. Um, it's all innovative in a way that attempts to like 
thin, like thin the veil or lower the barrier to uh, feel like I'm experiencing the product right in front of me on my screen, whether that is a like small iPhone screen or a large computer monitor, lowering the barrier there or creating a thinner veil to experience that is, is the big problem in e-commerce. In my opinion, AR tackles that. Uh, user workflow and, and experience tackles that. And also like brand tackles that in terms of how they're messaging and the information that they're showing and, and why they're showing up in that industry itself. Does that cool. attempt to answer your question? Does that touch on that? I, I think so for sure. And I, and I know I, I'm really keen on, on uh, you know, we just I'm about to record another intro. We're gonna, this is a, an interesting podcast. We'll, do, we'll, we'll redo the intro. Sure. Uh, we had one of our members not make it uh, to this one, but I want to make sure we pick back up with her at a time that we can and, and mm-hmm. really bring her back into this discussion of the evolution of commerce, commerce platforms, this idea of headless commerce, which I think is really interesting. So we'll save that for next time. Jesse is a, is a friend of mine uh, and I'm super happy to have had him on uh, the D2C podcast and, uh, and yeah, we'll do it again soon. Yeah. Uh, I'd love to be, I mean, I love these conversations. They're exploratory. I learn a lot by vocalizing some of this and you guys have some really great questions because I need to, uh, I need to, dwell on a couple of those. Uh, I've, I've really enjoyed this. Thank you.